On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about the RBC Canadian Open being cancelled for a second straight year. Why? Because it wasn't supposed to be in Hamilton this year. So why do we care? Well, two reasons. And we'll explain what those reasons are. We're also talking to Ontario Liberal Party leader Stephen Del Duca about money. The party has been able to get itself out of debt after the last election. But if he becomes premier, what will he do about the debt this province is facing? $400 billion. We'll talk about that. And Alan Cross, great music commentator, joins us to talk about a suggestion that Bruno Mars is guilty of cultural appropriation. Is he? And how do we sort out the idea of cultural appropriation in the arts and in music when People are inspired by different forms and different sounds and everything else. It's a tricky topic. We're going to talk about it. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We learned today that for the second straight year, the RBC Canadian Open Golf Championship has had to be canceled thanks to COVID. COVID just spoils everything, doesn't it? Anyway, uh, why is this such a big deal around here? After all, the tournament was not supposed to be held in Hamilton this summer. It was supposed to be in Toronto for the second straight year, canceled at St. George's. Well, two reasons. One, it was held here, as you probably well recall, it was here in Hamilton two summers ago, back in 2019. And that event not only was a huge success, but was supposed to be the launching point to really take the national championship into the next level of golf tournaments. And and based on the success in Hamilton, and we'll talk about it in a second, it seemed poised to do that. Hamilton had really been the launch pad for something pretty spectacular. And the second reason this is a big deal and worth talking about today, even though the tournament was not scheduled to be here this summer, is that it is scheduled to be here again, not next year, but the year after. And that tournament here in Hamilton, again, as we'll talk about in a moment, is a big deal both socially, but particularly financially for this city. Having a healthy tournament here in town whenever we can get it matters. Brian Crawford is the tournament director of the RBC Canadian Open. He joins us now. Brian, how are you today? Well, certainly uh, certainly had better days. (laughs) I, I guess. How long have you known this announcement was coming or at least been expecting that something like this was coming? Um, well, I mean, we've known just, you know, just about a week, we kind of, uh, got to the conclusion. Um, you know, we, we certainly knew it was a possibility, um, for several months and, and, um, you know, no, not knowing exactly what, uh, COVID had. And there's a lot of uncertainty, of course, you know, around, uh, what was in store for us as we kind of work through, uh, all of the various, um, you know, considerations, uh, for possibly having the event. So, you know, it was always something that was, uh, you know, possible in the back of our mind and, you know, something we were hopeful wasn't going to be likely, but then unfortunately it seemed to become more and more likely as we, you know, continue to, to draw closer to the event. Uh, perhaps it's totally obvious, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, it's still a number of months away that this tournament would have been held. Why cancel now? I mean, was there no chance or do you just have to make sure that it's canceled in time that you could cancel it? Why cancel it today? Yeah, I mean, we're we're actually 90 days out officially from uh, what would have been the start of our tournament week. So, um, you know, the reality is that it's a, you know it's a big uh, organism. It's a it's a big event that takes a lot of uh, a lot of people to pull off and has a lot of moving parts. And you know, in the interest of really being a you know a great partner to all of our stakeholders and partners, not least of which you know the PGA Tour, um, you know we had to ha- had to make sure that um, as a group we made a decision that was fair to everyone. And the reality is is that 
you know, today here uh, uh, in early March, uh, we weren't going to be any further along by the end of March as we are today. So uh, to make the decision now and really give everyone as much time uh, as possible was really kind of the, you know, the, the reason uh, behind doing it that way. Uh, and making the decision now and just and moving ahead and giving ourselves, you know, an opportunity to, um, you know, to set ourselves up for success in the long term. We have seen the NHL play without crowds here in Canada. Um, could you have done that? Or is this a tournament that financially would have been impossible to do without crowds? Could you have brought the golfers here and just run it? Or would it have been too crushing financially to do that? Uh, no, we absolutely uh, were, were, planning on that model of hosting the event uh, without any fans. That said, it certainly is uh, a big financial burden to, uh, to withstand doing that. Um, you know, it's, it's still a massively expensive endeavor, uh, even without, you know, the infrastructure and the operational requirements of having uh, fans. And, you know, tournaments uh, on the PGA Tour, the host organizations like Golf Canada, uh, very much depend on on the gate, on tickets and hospitality revenue, our secondary uh, partners. You know, that is a big part of what drives the uh, host organizations. And in our case, Golf Canada, you know, which is the national sport organization for golf. And, you know, it has a big impact on on the success of our organization uh, as a not-for-profit national sport organization in the country. So, um, you know, by, you know, by no means is that kind of the deciding factor or anything like that. Uh, but, and we had certainly planned to be able to proceed with, uh, without fans, but, you know, at the end of the day, uh, for us here in Canada, you know, quarantining, uh, the border restrictions were all, uh, components that were, you know, very, um, challenging to, to overcome. And the reality is, you know, compared to say the NHL or, uh, you know, the world juniors or something like that, you know, we're part of a tour. And the event, uh, the events take place every single week, and so being able to quarantine for you know 14 days in advance of the tournament just really just wasn't possible uh, at all. Um, kind of a non-starter for the event to be able to uh, to be able to take place. And also the reality is, you know, our event, you know, 650 plus people um, that we would have had to bring across the border and receive exemptions to those um, pieces of legislation, uh, which is a lot. It's, you know, it's double what the World Juniors would have been. Uh, the NHL players that came across, they still, you know, quarantined once they arrived in their training camp uh, environments. And, and so it just, it's a very different um, uh, reality uh, for this particular event than necessarily a few of the other examples of which there are very few examples so far here in uh, Canada. Yeah. When I heard at uh, Walter Gretzky's funeral that Wayne had had to have a, an exemption to get across the border. I, I get your point <laughs> that if Wayne Gretzky has to work to, with the government to try and get across the border, it may have been a challenge. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. Branford, uh, Branford, uh, Brian, uh, I don't know where Branford came from in that conversation. I don't think you're holding <laughs> it there anytime soon. Conversation earlier. <laughs> yeah. At the Walt, at the new Walter Gretzky golf center. That's uh, that's there now. Um, there has been no, so St. George's in Toronto was supposed to host it last year. Canceled this year. Canceled. There has not, as I understand, been a host center yet for next year. I think we could probably guess where it might be, but is there any possibility that because St. George's has been missed twice, that Hamilton could be bounced back in 2023 and lose its spot? Yeah, I mean, right now our plan for 2022 is to work with uh, the St. George's membership as well as the Islington Golf Country Club membership. Uh, for those that are kind of familiar with the setup there, we actually have the practice facility at Islington uh, Golf and Country Club. So uh, both of those clubs are our host partners for the event anytime it comes to St. George's. So 
uh, we'll work with them and their memberships uh, to have a to have a vote and, and try to do that in the next uh, couple of weeks, get it done fairly quickly um, to determine 2022 and then proceed from there. Right now, um, the plan is is status quo. It is to return to Hamilton in 2023. Um, as uh, some people may be familiar, uh, the golf club is currently in the middle of a massive renovation to all of the uh, golf holes on the property. Uh, which is ex- extremely exciting. I, I've had a chance to see some of uh, the property throughout the course of the renovation, and it is going to be uh, phenomenal. It is going to be absolutely phenomenal. It's already one of the uh, best clubs in the country, and now it is going to be even better. And uh, we're, you know, of course, really excited about that. And you know, the chance to go back after you know what you described earlier, such a successful 2019 to. Uh, get to go back there and actually have, you know, really a brand new golf course uh, that will be tougher in many ways as well. And an even more exciting challenge for uh, the PGA Tour professionals um, is something that's really, you know, really quite, uh, quite uh, exciting for us. And we've worked with the city, um, uh, you know, throughout the fall and putting together the the plan to to partner uh, for all of the uh, support that we need from the city to to host the event as well as it was, uh, as well as it took place uh, just two years ago. So, um, so yeah, that, that's, that's the plan going forward. And, you know, our hope is to return, you know, to Hamilton uh, and more than just in 2023 and, and other years um, in the future. Um, it's, as I said, a fantastic course with great history. The city is always amazingly supportive of the event. Um, and, you know, we're, we're working really hard to uh, put together a nice, strong, tight rotation of great host partner clubs um, of which we can rotate through um, over uh, over a number of years. And, and I think we're getting closer and closer to that than we've been. Um, we've had a number of conversations with other golf clubs and, and have had uh, have had to put them on hold a little bit as we, you know, figure out what was to happen this year and how things would slot together. So, so that's the plan. Uh, that's the plan going forward uh, as we look at it today. The fear I think some people have, and I think it's well-founded based on the past, is that it took years for the PGA Tour to finally give the Canadian Open a better slot on the schedule, not right after the British Open, which was just death because all the golfers were overseas and didn't want to fly back right away. Now, because of the cancellations, they're going to be having a fill-in tournament somewhere the weekend that the Canadian Open would have been. Do you have any concerns that if this is successful, that you could get squeezed out again and be scrambling again to fight for that same spot? None. None whatsoever. I, I, I can say that uh, the PGA Tour as, is as good of a partner as any. Um, we have you know, one of the best partners of, in all of golf in RBC. Um, the, you know, our, our, really our, not just our colleagues, but our friends of the PGA Tour were as supportive as we could have asked for or hoped for uh, throughout this whole process, and we're as bullish uh, as anyone about uh, making sure that it, uh, doing everything we could to try to make sure it happened. Um, you know, the reality is, is that Toronto is, uh, you know, the Toronto GTA market is, you know, the third largest on the PGA Tour after LA and New York. Uh, we not only have the PGA Tour market here in Toronto, but the entire market for golf in Canada. It's uh, the third oldest event on the PGA Tour. It's a national championship and a national sport organization uh, that we have a, a tremendously strong relationship um, with the tour. So, yeah, I, it, that's a question that's certainly come up a lot, and it's understandable why people would be concerned about that. Um, but, you know, I think we have a really, still a really bright future uh, ahead of us. 
you know, you kind of referenced all the things in 2019. Um, we were set to surpass that in 2020. You know, we had, you know, even bigger musical acts. We had an even stronger field. Uh, you know, the weather actually was amazing last year at uh, the week of our tournament. Uh, we had other exciting elements that we were going to add and announce. And, you know, so all of those things are still uh, in, in, you know, kind of within reach for us to put back into play. Once but do you have to start play. over? Brian, sorry to jump in, but all those things which were so great in Hamilton with Florida, Georgia line and everything, and you had so much momentum with two years off, are you starting over or can you still have momentum? No, I don't think you, I don't think it's a case of starting over. Um, you know, I think that you look at, you know, the opportunity to, that you can seize by kind of being off for two years that obviously, you know, that's, you know, you don't want to, of course you want to just run one after another, after another, after another. But I think that there also you get the opportunity to have some uh, built up demand uh, for the product and for events in general and um, the excitement of returning after now what will be two years um, and going to St. George's. You know, they just finished a you know, big renovation of their bunkers and all these sorts of things and their golf course. Uh, they're excited to show that off. So, you know, I think there's opportunity there. You know, would any of us pick to, you know, have the event canceled for two years in a row? Of course not. <laughs> You definitely wouldn't want to, and and like you said, that momentum. You want to just go right into the next one, and that's probably been probably been the hardest thing for everyone. Is that you know we we really turned uh, over you know a, turned the page and 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 really did something uh, pretty special in 2019. That yeah, absolutely. You want to just keep building on that every year, and you know that's 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 kind of how it happened, and it happened to you know certainly not just us, uh, anybody in the sport uh, sure, environment absolutely. or in the entertainment environment is kind of facing similar realities. So, so that's how that's how we're looking at it, anyways. Well, we are hoping that uh, nothing has changed, and in two years, hence that it'll be back here in Hamilton, and because uh, certainly it was a, an amazing event here a couple of years ago, and it's a big big deal for the city. Brian Crawford, tournament director for the RBC Canadian Open, Ancaster guy, by the way, for those who don't know, local guy running the tournament. Great job. Uh, thanks for doing this, Brian. Thanks. Thanks so much, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Heard uh, the other day that uh, through a number of stories and a number of comments that the Ontario Liberal Party, which had been in some difficulty after the last election, has now dug its way out of a $10 million debt. And uh, under Stephen Del Duca, the leader of the Liberal Party of Ontario, is now back at an even point, which is an impressive achievement. Question is, what does this mean on a broader scale as well as just to the party? Uh, Stephen Del Duca, Liberal Party leader, joins us right now. Mr. Del Duca, thanks for doing this. Today, I always love having you on the show. Thanks for doing this. No, my pleasure. Uh, Congratulations for doing this. It is uh, certainly an achievement. How have you been able to get out of that debt so quickly? No, I appreciate that. So there were some decisions that were made by our party executive in the immediate aftermath of the big defeat that we had in 2018. As you mentioned, when we had about a $10 million debt. So very early on, the party executive decided we need to be very disciplined, very careful, um, and, and pair back expenses that could, we could afford back and us back on the road. I'll call it to sort of fiscal responsibility within the party. But the other really big thing in the last, uh, I would say, last eight or nine months, the, the biggest decision that we made as a party last July, July 1st of last year, was to make the membership in our party free. And so we are the only major political party in Ontario that has no membership fee to to join. And so what that's meant for us is that our party membership has now more than doubled since uh, since July the 1st. We now have nearly 80,000 members within our party province-wide. And more and more of those members have agreed to become what we call small amount monthly donors. So 
They provide, whether it's $10 or $50 or $100 a month, depending on the individual's capacity, on a monthly ongoing basis supporting the party. So huge exponential growth in our membership in the amount of smaller donations coming in combined with that fiscal discipline and responsibility I talked about a second ago have gotten us to the place where we are the first major political party in Ontario to be debt-free coming out of 2018, ahead of the Conservatives, the NDP, and the Greens. And I feel really good about that. I want to get back to that in just one second, but just before I do, uh, there was a quote that's attributed to you. I'm assuming it's true. You can tell me if you're misquoted or this is not accurate, but uh, I read it says, our decimation two and a half years ago uh, wasn't that long ago, and we still have much work to do to earn the trust of the people of Ontario. Uh, Assuming that quote is accurate, how do you do that? Well, the, the quote is accurate. I feel very strongly that we do still have a ton of work to do. I have a ton of work to do to introduce myself to the people of Ontario to be able to look them squarely in the eye and say, look, I am the leader, we have the team and we have the plan that's going to that's going to give you and your family and your your community the best uh, the best chance for success going forward in this province, especially in the aftermath of this pandemic. And that won't be easy. Uh, there's about 13 or 14 months left until the next election is scheduled to begin. Uh, so I think getting back onto a very strong financial footing as a party is really important. We've now nominated 30 candidates province-wide. 60% of our candidates are female. 50% are people of color. Four of our 30 candidates are under the age of 30. I mentioned our membership is more than doubled, and we've just kicked off our platform consultation process. We're calling it Take the Mic. You don't have to be a party member to participate in that conversation. So I'm feeling really good about the progress that we're making, but let there be no mistake about this. I still have a ton of work to do, as does the party, Uh, to be a a viable alternative to Doug Ford. I think we're heading in the right direction, but still a ton of work to be done. I am a little shocked, not just with with you and that, and I don't mean shocked necessarily at you. It does seem, I mean, Andrea Horvath was out three or four or five days ago talking about her plan for the next election, basically for electric vehicles. It seems that talk of an election is starting way earlier than usual this time, whether it's the the pandemic or whether it's just that people have been in their house for months now or whatever. Are, are we not way early on this one? Uh, I, you know, it depends on how you look at it. So again, we, we the, the next election is scheduled to begin by legislation probably around the beginning of May of next year. So that's about four, 13 and a half, 14 months from now. I know from my time in government that, that that last year that, you know, before an election can go by very quickly. There's also something really important to note as well. Doug Ford started making noises. He started nominating his candidates back in November, December. So there were some, there were some rumors out there about Doug Ford perhaps deciding to go to an election early to take advantage of what he perceives as more support amongst the electorate because of, uh, you know, again, his perceived performance during the pandemic. I don't know if he plans to call an early election. I don't think it's the right time for an election. We're still struggling with getting the vaccines rolled out and rebuilding an economy that's being battered so badly. Um, but he might try to go a bit early. So that might help explain why uh, other opposition parties are, are talking about their plans. What I know from my perspective is it was really important for me to be able to say to the people of Ontario, if you're going to entrust the, the government to someone like me and the team that I'm putting together, I have to be able to tell you that you know we are going to be responsible with your hard-earned tax dollars. We are going to be making the right kind of investments in things that are critically important, like public health care and public education. we got a great team of candidates and some really compelling ideas. And so those are, those are the pieces that we are very actively putting together right now. But uh, this last 13 months before the election will go by, I think, fairly quickly. And I'm sure every party, including my party, wants to be ready. 
You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Mr. Del Duca, we started talking about money, about that, and I want to go there for a second and about debt because it's a really, um, it's an interesting piece on a broader note uh, because Ontario's debt, we are told, is now somewhere in the neighborhood of $400 billion. Uh, A large chunk of that we know is the result of what's happened with COVID. A large chunk of that is what happened with the previous governments that led into that. Um, And according to the government's own, the the, the province's own numbers, we're now paying roughly $12.5 billion a year just to cover the interest on that debt. That's a huge amount of money that could go into other things that's just being flushed down the toilet. 8%, something like that, of government revenues. If you became premier... How much of a priority is it for you that we would reduce that debt from $400 billion rather than continuing to spend and add to it? Yeah, so look, I, I understand, and this is why I talked about the fact that we were able to get our party's fiscal house back in order as being important to me, because I think that's, that's an important demonstration that I believe in, in not being wasteful with, in this case, my party's money, but also with the hard-earned tax dollars that that people pay into government. I, you know, I'm not sure that I'll agree completely with the notion that because we have a debt, we've somehow wasted money. I look around Ontario and I see uh, over the last uh, over the last couple of decades, dozens, hundreds of hospitals, schools, colleges, lots of public transit, highway repairs. I mean, there's a long, long list of things that you and I and the rest of Ontario collectively have invested in to give us the quality of life that, that we have. And especially during this pandemic, of course, governments at all levels have had to intervene quite aggressively on the fiscal front to make sure that we have, and in Ontario, most of this is federal money, but income supports and supports for, for individuals and small businesses, uh, and also supports for public health. So look, I believe as, as the kind of liberal that I am in keeping, um, uh, keeping a close eye on not being wasteful with hard-earned tax dollars. Having said that, I do believe coming out of this pandemic, it would be a mistake for any government to propose to go towards deep austerity or deep cuts to those things that we will need to invest in in order to have the economic growth that will help us in the long term get back to balance. So, like to me, at its very core, the most important economic policy for Ontario on the other side of the pandemic is getting publicly funded education right at all levels, including preschool all the way through elementary and secondary, all the way into college, university, or taking up a trade. And so I wouldn't want to cut back in that area. I'd want to look for smarter investments in that area, for example, in things like smaller class sizes for elementary and secondary kids to drive towards excellence, create the economic growth and the increased revenue that comes into government because of that to help get back to fiscal balance. So that's my perspective on it, Scott. And I think most Ontarians are moderate and pragmatic in that regard. And to be clear, I, I I wasn't suggesting that all the money that has been spent has been wasted. The the waste, I guess, or the part that I think catches a lot of people off guard, is the twelve and a half billion that is just going to go to the the borrowers um, that we can't spend on any infrastructure or programs or anything else. And I think a lot of people would say that seems like money that could be better served somehow if we could get that debt down so we could put it towards sure. education, healthcare, whatever else. For sure. Uh, for sure. I mean, I guess there, you know, there would have to be a bigger assessment done about, you know, where has that, where has that deficit or that debt come from? It's many, many years of investments that governments of all political stripes have made. I will also say to your listeners, the last time Ontario had a balanced budget, you know, more than one year or or one week's worth of balanced budgets was uh, 2006, 2007, 2008. The, the last one of the last Liberal governments delivered three consecutive 
balanced budgets. And so, look, I think everybody would say, me included, in a perfect world, you want to have a, a budget that's balanced. I just know that the, you know, some of the areas that you would have to cut into very, very deeply in this moment to very quickly balance the books. You'd have to go after education. You'd have to go after healthcare. You'd have to go after so much more. I just don't think we can afford to do that right now. I want our economy to grow. I want small business owners to be able to be like absolutely on, like on fire in terms of on the other side of the pandemic, having the support that they need. I want more people to be able to find a good job in this province and have a good paycheck, support their families, have workplace benefits. I mean, there's so many things that we can do. Again, I talked about the importance of public education. That is a core principle or value for me and for the Ontario Liberal Party. And I think we have the capacity and the, the innovation and the know-how in this province to create that kind of economy. I just don't think we'll get there with deep, deep cuts in austerity. And I'm nervous. I'm fearful that that's what Doug Ford's plan will be on the other side of the pandemic. And he's just kind of keeping that secret right now. Well, and and again, to be fair, um, I think a lot of people would agree with you on the idea that we don't want to have deep, deep cuts and carve into education or carve into healthcare. But are there cuts to be made? I mean, are do you are is it your opinion that there are any cuts that could be made that could start bringing that four hundred billion down, or is that a number that by necessity is going to actually have to go up in the next few years? Well, I you know I think that it's always worthwhile for for governments to consider how. So, for example, the government of Ontario. And all of its agencies, its boards, its commissions, its different ministries, uh, we, uh, on our behalf, the government spends tons of money every year to purchase through procurement, whether it's goods or it's services, everything from office stationery and paper clips all the way up to IT. I happen to believe that there's a way for us to drive more value for what we invest in procurement. I saw that with my own eyes when I was inside government. But, you know, do I think that on its own is suddenly going to make us come back to balance magically overnight? I don't. I think the best way for us to deliver ultimate budget balance, if I can call it that, is to drive up economic growth. And to me, and I did have the chance to serve for six months as the economic development minister, the single greatest competitive advantage we have in Ontario is creating one of the world's highest skilled and best trained workforces and then aligning aligning how we train our individuals to the jobs that are available in emerging markets. That's what we'd spent a lot of time over 15 years working hard on. It's one of the reasons that our economy at a sort of a global or macro level was so strong in 2018. And so I would rather see that we double and triple down on getting that piece right while we protect and preserve and enhance our universal public health care system, have a real plan to drive forward on fighting climate change and environmental sustainability. And the ingredients are there, Scott, like we've got this capacity in this province. We just need to get through this pandemic. What's left of it, God willing, will be out of this by before the end of this year. And then I think Ontario Liberals will have a very compelling vision or roadmap that's positive and forward-looking for the people of Ontario uh, come the next campaign. Stephen Del Duca, leader of the Liberal Party of Ontario. Always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. Thank you. You take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I read a piece today that kind of got my head spinning a little bit because it's a really challenging, difficult, confusing issue. And the thesis goes like this, um, Bruno Mars, you know, the guy behind Uptown Funk, huge, successful musician. Not, that's only one of his songs. He's got a ton. He did the Super Bowl halftime a few years ago. He is part Filipino. He is part Puerto Rican. He is part Jewish, we're told. The thesis behind this is that because he is not black, he has culturally appropriated black music, which critics would say he shouldn't be doing. I guess that's what they're saying. It's a little unclear. 
the tricky part, the trouble, the, the obstacle, the hurdle, whatever you want to call it with this argument is the definition of music and the inspiration for music and where music comes from and the ideas and how it gets created. And it leads to a question of should nobody play any style of music that's based on or has elements that come from cultures that aren't their own? Should we only stick to the things that are from our culture or can you be influenced and bring in other cultures music into your music i mean if we go with the idea that you must stick in your lane i guess uh it seems both incredibly difficult to police and frankly rather restrictive in a creative medium anyway there is one guy who i immediately thought of who could talk about this because i really believe that he is one of the great probably the great music commentator in this country um, talks about all kinds of stuff. And I, I got to believe he has some thoughts on this. His name is Alan Cross. He's the man behind a journal of musical things. He joins us now. Alan, thanks for doing this today. This is a difficult one. And I, and I understand both sides of the situation. But if we go ahead and say that cultural appropriation is completely off limits, well, then we pretty much throw out all modern music because it's it's been built on the shoulders of, of many, 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 many generations that have come before it. And if we look at rock and roll, I mean, that's, basically the blues and rhythm blues and uh, throwing a little bit of country and hillbilly music and that's what you got. So the idea of not being able to be influenced by art that you hear is, is highly problematic. Well, that's, so let, let's go there for a second. Cause again, this is a really, uh, it, it's, it's a, I don't know if the word is strange. It's a really difficult one to untangle. And I'm not really sure how we got here because I'm not really sure. And the, the piece wasn't clear what inspired the problem with Bruno Mars. And, and he would certainly, as we get into this conversation, he would just be one example, as you point out, but isn't music and you just touched on it, but Everybody who plays music, have they not, or creates music, have they not somewhere along the way been inspired by someone before them? There's nobody who comes into this with an absolutely pure, clean slate that just suddenly starts writing music and says, I never heard any music before. Yeah, but let's go back to Bruno Mars just for a second. He has been accused of uh, certain types of plagiarism. If you look at the song Uptown Funk, and if you go to the Wikipedia page, and you look at the number of songwriters credited to that. The problem that he ran into is that uh, he had to give up songwriting credit to a number of black artists because they say that they he appropriated material from their material, their songs, to create Uptown Funk. And that's the same sort of thing that happened with Robin Thicke and uh, Blurred Lines, which really was uh, an homage to uh, Got to Give It Up from Marvin Gaye. So there are there are there are two things right there where you are, um, and let's be very clear about this, what you're doing there is that you are making, you are basically name-checking, you are footnoting, you are putting in your bibliography of your song that you have taken elements from these other songs. So that's a it, But is that appropriation or is that plagiarism? Well, it could be both. Uh, in the case, I, I, would, I would consider it to be, in those cases, and I've been following the very very carefully, I would consider that to be um, an homage to a sound, to an influence that came before. Uh, but if you don't credit it properly, much like you didn't footnote or uh, put in your bibliography in your high school essay, uh, you know, you, you've basically 
denied the providence of where you got that stuff from, right? So that's 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 a, a, a different sort of appropriation. But the uh, I'm not entirely sure when this word is thrown around what it means to different people. Is it that uh, you're trying to make the same sort of music as another culture would? Uh, again, you know, you run into problems. So let's let's go back into to music history. So uh, ska music, when it had its big comeback in the late 1970s, that was based on music of, of Jamaica. Uh, and today, there are hundreds, maybe thousands of artists that are are, uh, are making ska music. Is, is that cultural appropriation, or is that taking a really good musical idea and advancing it further? Uh, you can say the same thing about reggae. I mean, there's a lot of white reggae acts. Uh, have they have they appropriated that form of music and turned it into something that it shouldn't be, or have they just uh, found it to be so infectious, so good that they wanted to play it themselves and and maybe add their own spin to it? I mean, that's the whole thing about music. Music is is nobody comes into it like you said, uh, sits down at a piano and, and and starts from a blank slate. You all you always base what you do on everything that you've heard everything that you've learned. So, uh, and with Bruno Mars, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, he is a, obviously, definitely a, a person of color. So why would there, uh, I, I would like to find out what that author was talking about when they say that he is blatantly appropriating black culture. Well, I mean, one other part of this, and look, I, I do understand, uh, you know, and, and you do too, we understand what the concept of cultural appropriation is. And oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes it's applied when you are doing something and then putting a malicious or sarcastic or insulting spin, not always, but that's, you know, for Halloween costumes, people will say something like that. You oh, and, and and so it's a negative connotation. And, and I think we can all understand Certainly in modern times, we can all understand the problem with that and where people are going to say that's totally out of line. But most music, I don't think anyone writes music because they hate it. I think in almost every case, if you're going to sit down and write a song and pour your creative heart into it and try and produce it and publish it and perform it, I think it's because you like that music and it's an homage it's you're it's a compliment almost that you have loved that style of music and so you know usually people are flattered by a compliment and, and again it gets tricky because you know is that enough you would think uh, again there has been a lot of blatant appropriation i'll give you another example led zeppelin uh they ended up playing uh and recording and claiming a bunch of songs uh, as the Rome, which were actually written by old black blues artists. Uh, that is blatant cultural appropriation. They took something from another person, uh, in this case, black, and then they put their own name on it. And they got, they got nailed for that over and over again, which, which is good. But it, 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 what that does is it adds to the history of that kind of thing. And we could go through, you know, many more styles of music and, point to the fact that they have been lifted from other cultures. Um, but again, you know, you're right. I mean, I like this, how it sounds. I like how it feels. I, I somehow identify with it in a, you know, an artistic way, in, a, in an emotional way or something that makes me feel good. And, I'm, you know, should I not be able to, to uh, study it and, and, and play it in, in whatever manner that I could? 
Well, and, and look, start, it doesn't take very long if you go down this path to start thinking about, I mean, Bruno Mars is the one we're talking about and he's the one that got this conversation going, but, you know, Paul Simon with the Graceland album, with with South African music. Well, is that an homage? Is that a, a compliment or is that cultural appropriation? Eminem. I mean, any any white artist in rap music, you would probably say, would fall into that category. Um, the Beatles, you know, George Harrison with his Indian influences in Beatles music, um, or, or even, you know, anybody in the early rock genre who says, well, I go back and Chuck Berry was my guy. It, again, it, it's a really tough one to say, where does inspiration end and appropriation begin and is it a should we be using even that word unless to your point and i think you're you're very right alan if you are ripping someone off and taking money out of their pocket yes that 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 to me is a different thing if you've taken their song or basically their song that's different from being inspired by the sounds of that music of asian music or indian music and saying i'm going to add that to what i do yeah, so, so should the Beastie Boys be canceled for taking the rap of, of the Bronx and turning it into a, a worldwide phenomenon? Should uh, Blondie, in fact, let's go back even further, who did a song called Rapture back in 1980, that was the first rap song, really, to become a, a, a hit, introduce rap to an awful lot of people. Um, let's see, try to think of some others. Oh, uh, we go back to Chuck Berry. Uh, John Lennon got nailed by Chuck Berry because he included a couple of lines in Come Together that were actually read out of the Chuck Berry song, and as a result, had to record an album featuring some Chuck Berry songs and give the royalties all over to him. So, I mean, again, the, the history of appropriation uh, like that goes a long, long, long way back. But, uh, again, we have to make this distinction between, um, you know, building on some on your on influences and, and, and stealing, somebody, stealing something from somebody and not giving them appropriate credit. Sure. Uh, but there is no way... In, in, in music, that you can say that you have not been influenced by someone somewhere, some, somewhere, and that the music that that derives from that is is, is therefore illegal in some way. It, it's it's ridiculous. The the whole music would come to a halt. Songwriting would come to a halt. Nobody would ever be able to write anything ever again. We can look at uh, Oasis, for example, blatantly inspired by the Beatles. So uh, again, it's 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 a Manchester band taking on a Liverpool band. You know, you could go right that if you wanted to make this as as ridiculous as as, as you want, saying that one sound the city the sound of one city took the sound of another. But this is okay. So this is now out there, though. There are some, and I mean, you read the piece that I'm talking about, and you've heard this before. Uh, clearly, this this idea it's clearly out there. There is clearly a view in some corners that you should, and I don't even know if this is the right phrase, but sort of stay in the lane that you're in. Stay if you are not, I guess, is, Jamaican, you shouldn't but, play reggae music. That that's their culture, and so leave it alone. Isn't that uh, against the spirit of? The creation of art, isn't that? Well, that's you know, what I thought. That's what I thought. Uh, you know, in my opinion, is that uh, you know we should all come together and learn from each other and and, and enjoy the the fruits of each other's cultures. It, doesn't that bring us together? See, providing, that's, uh, of course, that everybody is is appropriately credited and 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 acknowledged. And, and Alan, I'm glad you mentioned that because see, I, I'm looking at this going, okay, I, you know, I when I have heard other 
music and we'll stay with music for now, but other music that I had not necessarily been exposed to. And now I hear something and I go, man, I, I, you know, I love that. And and again, I'll, I'll go back to Paul Simon's Graceland album. I'm sure I had heard South African music like that before, but he now brought it to the mainstream and you listen, you went, I can really now appreciate when I hear the original, not the original of that song, but the, like the, the, the pure, just South African music without Paul Simon involved in it. I can now really appreciate that because he's introduced me to it and, and brought another culture and sensibility into my experience. I don't see that as a bad thing. No, look at what Paul Simon did. That was the time still of apartheid. So 1988, um, he goes out on a limb, goes to South Africa, where a lot of white Westerners would not go because of apartheid. Uh, hooks up with Lady, Lady Smith Akwambazo. Uh Terrific, brilliant music that a lot of us in the West had never, ever heard before. Brings attention to them, and then they become world famous. Same thing happened with Peter Gabriel and any number of artists that he recorded with, with his real world record label, including, uh, including Yusuf Nadar, who is uh, out of Senegal. Uh, introducing the rest of us to uh, certain types of, of, of African music. Um, there is another singer that Peter Gabriel worked with. Uh, he was a Pakistani Kowali singer named Nasrat Fahmid Ali Khan. Brilliant stuff that we would have never heard of otherwise. And, you know, it, I don't think anybody's exploited here. I think that's, that's an, a, an opportunity for these artists to, to reach a wider audience and for us to, you know, in the West, for example, to understand better where their, these cultures are coming from. So if, if you know, we, we cancel out that idea that you can't go to another country, learn from the artists in that country, and then uh, incorporate those influences in whatever you're doing, while at the same time giving them credit and then showing the world what these artists are capable of doing. I mean, that that just is, uh, you know, anathema to to everything that that art should be. You want everybody to share in great art, not to segregate it. Yeah, it, I mean, it's it's an interesting one. And and once again, if anyone's just tuning in, I mean, uh, to, to be clear, we're not talking about those cases when someone has just ripped off someone else's music and benefited from it and not given them credit. And if that's what, if that's the definition of cultural appropriation, then yes, I would agree that that should not be happening. But I would describe that as plagiarism. And then you don't get into all the mm-hmm. the other stuff that spins along with this thing. But you're right. I, I, I look and I think almost every great artist has been inspired by some other great artist. In now, fact, I think the you- only person that might not, it, I'd love to see a test. I'd love to do an experiment. I don't know how you would ever do this. To take someone who has been deaf all their life and suddenly they are able to hear and place them in front of a piano and say, let's see what you create. And that would be the only way you could ever have a completely clean slate with no influences. But I don't think it would be long before that person would hear other music and be inspired or bring some of those things in. It's natural. Yeah, you cannot control what triggers dopamine releases in your brain. And it, it could be something, you know, banjo music. It could be, you know, African music. It could be throat singing from the uh, northern Canada, you don't know. And art is one of the great unifiers of the human race. Now, we should be very, I'll say this, you know, we got two white guys talking about cultural appropriation. Uh, It would be interesting to have somebody else on the other side of the coin and to give us their opinion on it, because we're obviously not schooled in that sort of feeling um, and that sort of attitude. So, 
<laughs> open your phone lines and see what people say. You know, I, yeah, no, I mean, your and your point is valid there as well. And I don't, I don't mean to suggest otherwise. And I know that there would be those who would say that, you know what, no one should take anyone else's style of music and, and it should remain, I don't know what the appropriate word is. Um, um, I don't know. I, I, I just, as I say, it, it seems to me that these things, that music has now, and you started with this, Alan, and, and I think it was a valid point. You go back to the roots of rock and roll. Yes, there's blues and there is rhythm and blues and all those things that would have come from, and elements of that that would come from African-American culture, but there are parts of it that also come from country music or other things that don't come from, how do you untangle this now? And how well, do you determine which parts are which? I mean, we're, we're at a point now, I don't know how you untangle any of this stuff. No, you, you can't, because that's the evolution of music. It is a constantly evolving, mutating thing that segments and stratifies and separates into all these different streams. And the genie was out of the bottle a long, long time ago, and uh, I don't know how you're going to fix it, if it needs to be fixed. It's a great question. I, it's a, it, the, the piece was in the National Post. People can go read it. Bruno Mars confronts allegations of appropriating black culture and music. It's a, it's a really interesting piece. It's a thinking piece. Uh, you may agree with Alan and I. You may disagree with Alan and I. That's Either one is okay. You're entitled to your thought and your opinion on this one. Absolutely. Um, Alan Cross, always appreciate you, though, spreading, shedding some light on this. I, I always turn to you when we need some deep thoughts in the world of music, and you always provide it, and I thanks for the time. You appreciate it. Anytime. It is, um, it is something, uh, as I say, that is, uh, that is definitely worth thinking about and looking at and deciding. And you can, you can be of the opinion. And, and again, you're entitled to your opinion. No one's telling you, you you are not. You can be of the opinion that rhythm and blues and rap and other forms of music that have traditionally and historically come from the African-American experience should only be sung by African Americans. I think it's a I think it's a as Alan just said it's a hard nest to untangle because music is so now wrapped up with all different influences that have led us to where we are today. I don't know how you would go back to a time when it was those other influences were not in it. But it there are those who clearly believe that that there are people like Bruno Mars are stepping into areas they shouldn't be stepping into and, and appropriating people's culture. I, I, I find it a very complicated thing to try and figure out and even understand and sort out. And if songs are being, or melodies or lyrics or other things are being pinched and stolen and plagiarized, that's, that is, that to me is a very clear cut answer. Not, there's no question in my mind about that. If you're going to steal something from someone, and I'm not saying he is, I'm saying anyone. If you're going to steal something from someone, I, I think we can all probably agree that that is whatever you want to call it, plagiarism, cultural appropriation, whatever, totally wrong. But if you are inspired by something, is that wrong? Do we... Ben just whispered in my ear back at the home office, and it's a great point. Do we want to segregate music? Do we want to, you know, we've spent an awful lot of time appropriately trying to allow for desegregation and for people to live together and work together and not see all the things that may divide us. 
And I think that's a very positive thing. You know, go back to not 50, 60, 70 years ago, you know, we were trying to undo those things, those segregations. Is that, do we want to return to that? I don't think we do. In fact, I know we don't. We want, we want to be seen all as, you know, we can work together and do these things. Look, go read the piece. It's a fascinating, complicated, difficult one that uh, everyone is going to have a different opinion on, but I'm glad for Alan to, uh, to shed some light on it as well. It's a really interesting one. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.